Good morning. We are out. My life is long. And uh, fall is coming. It's dark once the kids get off to school. And so we are enjoying, just enjoy the fact that I don't have squeaky snow. If you've been listening to my podcasts a long time, you know that eventually the snow becomes an issue. Because it turns out, as a lot of people don't know, that it isn't a silent blanket of snow when you walk in it, especially when it gets below 10 degrees. It becomes a squeaky blanket of snow. I want to talk about something today. Um, I think I'll drop the hypothesis first and then backtrack a, a long ways. The thing that I, and this is new to me, so again, I am not waiting until I know this to talk about it. I am trying to talk as I'm grappling with ideas because it is sincerely my desire that I not give you answers, that I not tell you how to think, but that I tell you how I think. Um, And that may or may not be valuable to you, It could be valuable because you know me. It could be valuable because of what I say, and you're interested how I come up with that. But I want it clear every time I do this. I don't say it every time, but I definitely want it just anchored in your mind that don't let people think for you. If somebody has a thought and you value it, you have to think it through yourself at least. Probably that isn't even adequate. You probably need to test it yourself. I have adjusted my thinking over the course of making podcasts, and I've adjusted that based on learning occurs through trial and error. And then I realized that, no, that that is the way learning occurs. The second way learning occurs is through trial without error. So if you're humble and you pay attention to your surroundings, you can choose not to make the mistakes that others make and save yourself a lot of pain. But the problem is that there are too many people who say, well, you could even save yourself the effort of trial. Just take my advice, just take my knowledge, adopt it or articulate it without embodying it. Just adopt it verbally and then you will be wise. And it turns out that that seems to have been, we'll see, but almost fatal to the organization of the uh, church, what I would call the church of the mind. Once you tell people that you don't have to have trial, you can just jump to saying it. Um, It's a problem. So I don't want to be part of the problem. That's all that little part after I told you I was going to jump into the hypothesis, then I had to go down that rabbit trail. Maybe it's a day like that. So, here's, here's the hypothesis. The hypothesis is that a lot of what we perceive as rebellion in kids is the result of us not giving them a playable game. And I'll come back to that. But that's where I'm going. And the reason I'm going there is because there's a huge differential between, I'm teaching at a Christian school, 
this uh, now it's down to one class a week. Um, the uh, the response I get from the kids and the response the other teachers get from the kids varies deeply, and enough that not only are they wondering why I think, although not not verbally, but I'm wondering why. It's like well, how how can these kids who I like so much and who seem so eager to please, how can they be in the next classroom over causing constant problems? And I, I had a clue to it um, when I when I went up to and joined a part of the school day that I'm not normally there. Okay, so let me describe one picture of not giving kids a winnable game. The game isn't playable because the game doesn't do what a game ought to do. But it, it, it it's actually probably a misnomer. It's actually that the game becomes something other than the, the organizers wanted it. And so the the game gets played to the wrong goal. And when I speak about a winnable game, somebody could say, yeah, there's winners and losers. So a winnable game is only good for half of the people. And that is to misunderstand um, what a game is. A game is precisely something you want to do again. So the way you win the game, which is a little, a little mock scenario of some sort of combat, um, and combat you don't want to do again. Combat you want to be done with once and for all. Um, the, the, the basic instinct of fight or flight, those aren't pleasurable to you. And so what happens is if you have to fight, you want to defeat your enemy. You don't want that to go on and on. Um, or if it's if you need to run, you want to run away from that enemy and all enemies for all times. Those threats to you are not games. Now, they become games or they become models of games for us. And that is we, we make a game where we we fight, and then when all of your checkers have been killed, you're called the loser. But then you go and you say, well, let's set them up and play again. Set them up and play again is the ultimate winner in the game. Games are played to play them again. And so if you're going to go to school every day with the kids, you want a winnable game. And by winnable, I mean you want a game in which both parties want to play again. And that's a winnable game. A, a game that doesn't play is a game where one of the parties says, I'm going home. I'm not going to do this again. And I'm going to explain how a lot of times it's the kids who win the daily game and it's because, precisely because they've won the daily game that they have no interest in playing the series of games. Understand this, there's, there's a lot that are games. There's a lot of ways that games are formed. But the thing that makes it a game is that even while there are winners and losers, 
in the daily iteration, over the span of the game, there's a desire to play and play again. And there's a social reciprocity that you get invited to play again. Okay, so basically, the game that I set up for students is, if you will let me lead, I will try my hardest to tell you something interesting that you didn't know. Now, I, I admittedly, that's probably harder for a math teacher to make it interesting. I mean, it's easy to find things that they didn't know, but to make them interesting. Well, the math teacher maybe sets up the game a little different. The math teacher says, if you pay attention and allow me to lead the class, you are going to be able to conquer these problems. And you will have right answers which win. That's a game, and that's a meaningful game. Um, generations of people made it into a meaningful game and set it up so that you conquered the problems. You defeated the... And they didn't make math fun. They didn't try to make math fun. They, they set it up almost like it's a monster you have to conquer. And so you set up the, the day of math saying, here's this monster. It looks hopeless. It looks like it could swallow you alive. But if, if you pay attention to me and follow my instructions, we will conquer this problem. All right, let's do problem number one. And then they conquered it. And then it's time for homework. And they go home and they conquer the monster. And they come back and they find that the monster won a couple times, the math monster. But they won. And so, so much of school, perhaps all of school, would be rightly formulated as a game. And the important part, the way to win that game, is not for... It, it wasn't a game. It should not be a game of dominance between the kids and the teachers. There should be some other... Because the, the game of dominance between the teachers and the kids turns into combat. And pretty soon, one or the other party doesn't want it to go on. They want to be done with it. So, establishing the proper game is vital. Here's what happened at school. Part of the school... It's a Christian school, and so there's a, an opening exercise in the morning um, with prayer and worship. And they made an effort to, to pick songs that are, are enjoyable to the kids, and they've incorporated some, some videos to watch and sing along with, with motions. And, um, but the rules of the game have been laid out that the kids come in and each class has a line and they stand on that line and they have some freedom of movement but within the, the confines of being on their line or roughly in their line they are to listen to the music and do motions along with the video. So that's the game and the kids are supposed to get a way to interact with the music and somewhat to interact with each other. And uh, I'm not 100% sure 
how they would describe what the kids get that would make them want to play again. But in the, in the long term, it's intended to lay a foundation in the kid's life. And so that's difficult when you set up a game and then you tell the kids, I promise that in 10 years you'll be glad you know these songs because that's hard to make it into a game they want to play. So let's say it is a weak game. And I think that the teacher knows that it's a weak game. So they, they are perhaps a, not as confident in insisting upon playing the game. That's a problem that needs to be addressed. But even a weak game can be fun for a while. Um, you know, tic-tac-toe doesn't enthrall me for hours, but I'd play. Any kid wants to play tic-tac-toe with me for a few times. So, you know, I'll play for a while. I'm not going to lose track of time, but I'll play. Especially if I have something I don't mind to do, like drink a cup of tea. A grandkid could come and say, let's play. I might like to play it. So it's a, it's a, a weak, or in that case, it's a very simple game. And that's not the same as a weak game. But anyway, we have some sympathy for the fact that it is probably a weak game. And that may be part of this. But let me go on and tell you about Teacher A. Teacher A has a son who we'll call student B. So teacher A, and, and it's important to understand that there's a parent-child relationship there. So teacher A and student B. Student B comes in to the opening exercise carrying a ball. And the, the rule is you put everything away and stand on the line for worship. He has a ball and he stands about three yards away from the line. And student B thinks that he suspects, partly, probably because student B has a lot of contact with teacher A, who is also parent, student B probably has an idea that it's a, a weak game. I'm going to infer that. So, so what student B is doing is saying, I think that I'm an exception to the rules. Perhaps because I am close to one of the referees of this game is a parent. So maybe it's a special privilege, but I don't think for kids it's so much a special privilege as the phenomena that kids don't play games by the articulated rules. Kids play games by the embodied rules. And they start to play this game by imitating, not by listening to the rules. It turns out that kids pretty consistently learn to play a game by imitating. And later, when they have a need to pass that on to someone, or as they develop, then they may learn to articulate it. So, they play by imitation, but when somebody comes who is asks for an explanation, they sort of reason it out. I will try to give credit, although I give credit to Piaget for what he did, except that I didn't read that. I, so I have to give credit to Jordan Peterson's psychology class where he talks about Piaget to, for introducing me to this idea, but I think it is, I think it is a, an accurate idea. Kids play the the embodied game. So, I, I see it in all sorts of places. Rule is, the kids have to eat everything that's on their plate. I know some families like that. 
And it's like, okay, that's a very simple rule. It actually is a strong game if you set it up right. And if you carefully monitor the amount that you give your kids or allow them to take, conquering your plate, finishing the meal with a plate completely empty can be terribly meaningful, particularly if you praise that accomplishment. And then as they get older, when you link that accomplishment to a moral good, that you eat everything you take and we don't waste food. Okay, so that's not a that's not a weak game. But and it seems to be also a simple game. Eat everything on your plate. But kids are always watching. And so it turns out that for a lot of families, the embodied rule is not eat everything on your plate. The embodied rule often is eat everything most of everything on your plate. And so the first exception to the rule that kids find is, well, if you spread your rice over the whole plate, a whole spoonful of rice can look like just a little bit on the plate. And so that's the, that's the first exception the kids find. And the embodied rule is you have to eat the main glop of whatever's on your plate, but not all of the other. Okay, well then you have, let's say mom gets a phone call just as you're finishing the meal. And suddenly, that little bit of cold slaw, which you've spread over the plate to look like it's none, maybe you leave a little bit more. Maybe you leave all of it. Well, we think of that as kids like pushing the envelope, but kids don't. Kids think of it as a complex rule book. And they immediately embark upon finding the secret rules. Because I think that the way they perceive that event, mom being on the phone and not catching the fact that they left their whole serving of coleslaw, that is a rule. That's not an exception. I, I think kids don't really comprehend the idea of exceptions. Everything is played by the rules. I say that at a time when every kid wants to be the exception, but to me, it doesn't appear that they want to be the exception. It's that they want to know the full rule book. <laughs> it reminds me of learning to play cribbage. Cribbage has like, you get the concept of the game, but there's all of these extra rules. And so you play and about the time you say, oh, okay, I won this hand. No, you didn't because if I get this and that, then you don't. It's like, okay, well, tell me all the rules. And they tell you all the rules, and then it feels like, oh, well, we forgot about this rule. And so it starts to feel to a young or an inexperienced cribbage player, like the rule is there's always another rule that means you lose. So kids are really invested in saying, what are the whole rules? Okay, so then they learn by embodiment, not by articulation, that there's a rule that if mom is on the phone, well then they need to flesh that out. What are the other distractions which mean they don't have to eat their coleslaw? What are the other conditions? Is it hold true if dad's on the phone? Does it hold true? I mean, they are willing to have a rule book with 10,000 rules. And we think, no, no, there's one rule and maybe someday there's an exception. 
And they're like, no, no, there's 10,000 rules. There's no exceptions. All right. So student B is holding a ball saying, what are the rules? What really are the rules? Now, it looks like he's being defiant and trying to get special treatment, and that's one perceptual structure, and I wouldn't argue that it's untrue. But I don't think that's at the heart of it. At the heart of it, student B says, maybe I get to have a ball. And I immediately recognize that, and I go over to him, and I'm only there a couple days. So maybe in the past he's gotten to, but I go over to him and say, no, the rule is you don't get the ball, and you stand on the, uh, the line. So student B goes and stands on the line until parent slash teacher A comes in, and then he runs over to parent. Parent, I, being a volunteer and having no fear of being fired and little fear of being disliked, go over and say, hmm, is this where student B is supposed to be? And parent slash teacher A says, well, not specifically, but it's not a big deal. And what did he just do? Teacher A just introduced and validated the student's suspicion that there are a whole set of secret rules. And they're secret rules. I mean, we could say, no, play by the articulated rules, but then he would properly say, well, then articulate all the rules. But the kid's not going to demand that. The, the kid's going to say, okay, I found a secret rule. I'm going to play by that rule. Why does a kid want to play by the secret rules? The kids want to. It's because too many times kids feel like they played by the rules, they expect a win, and the parent comes in and says, oh no, you forgot the secret rule. So I think that we have to understand that, that many times we undermine their sense of fair play. And I know I do it. It's like, okay, here's what I need you to do. Here's how it needs to go down. I'm waiting for you to do it. And they do it, and, they, and I say, well, that would have been right, except for you did this and that, which weren't. And sometimes, I mean, to me, they're obvious. It's like, well, it would have been right, but you just walked on your sweatshirt to get here. And the kid's like, well, you didn't tell me that was a rule. Fair enough, I didn't. I thought you should know. But the kid is like, okay, well, how am I supposed to be expected to play for a win if you constantly have secret rules? So I believe that kids are hypersensitive to the secret rules. And I think there was evidence. So student B goes, stands by parent slash teacher A. Within three minutes, student B's sibling joins the group. Okay, sibling says, oh, there's a special rule. She's the younger sibling, and so not as, not as aware, but wow, thanks to, thanks to my big, thanks to my big brother, I know that there's a secret rule. 
Then, within another, before another song is done, here is the child of another teacher going to join the parent. And what happened? He just took a winnable game and turned it into a game that has no rules. You are fooling yourself if you don't think all of the non-parented kids, the kids whose parents aren't teachers, that they weren't looking around saying, oh, there are secret rules. You know, they could say, oh, the, the secret rule is that kids whose parents teach get to go stand by them. But that's not what's happening. All of the other kids are saying, aha, there are secret rules. The only way I have to win this game is to figure out what all the secret rules are. And that happened because of not rebellious kids. That happened because the kids are desperate to have a game that they can win. And the game was improperly established. I think that it might go one further, that the game was, it was established as a weak game. That may have been the underlying cause, but it certainly is a fact now that there, that all of the kids in that room know that there are secret rules. And all of the kids in that room know that their success at this game doesn't depend upon them following the articulated rules. Their success in the game depends upon them figuring out as quickly as possible all of the secret rules. And the only way they have to find those secret rules, there isn't a secret book with the secret rules. And even if there were, they are kids. They don't look at articulated rules. So the only way that those kids have to figure out the secret rules is to test everything. What will happen if we test everything? Well, I'm betting that the kids are going to win the game of testing rules, and they are going to lose the game, the meta game, of participating in an activity that they are going to do repeatedly and enjoy, because that's the point of a game. The point of the game is not that first level win, although that is a point. But the point of the game is playing in such a way that you want to play more. So what is it going to cost these kids? I'm betting they will win the game that makes them able to test every rule. And I don't believe that we will have at the school adequate consequences that will convince them not to do. So what is the long-term consequence? I will tell you what the long-term consequence is. We have socialized teachers who understand a responsibility. And so when they can no longer stand these kids, because these kids are pushing every button, testing every rule, when they no longer like these kids, they will pretend to like these kids. And the result of this game is there will be a lot of teachers who down deep don't like the kids. And because of the social demands upon them, they will, by their facial features, by their actions, they will lie to the kids every day. And the kids are going to take that lesson. They're going to take the lesson one direction or another. 
They're going to know that they aren't being told the truth because they're little ticks. But the teachers won't behave that way. Or they will try to use that to manipulate more. And they will think that the only valuable game is to defeat every other game. It's one thing if a kid wants to become the dictator. But instead, they will become the anti-dictator, the person who can shut down everything. And this happens so often. The kids become able to shut down, but isn't replaced with the kids being able to have something good. And it'd be one thing if the kids said, I think we should learn these things and build a good life this way, and you think it's that way, and we'll try to get our way. But it's not their way is properly understood, an unway. They are saying, I don't like the bridge you built me to my future, and I think I have the power to destroy that bridge. They're not saying, I think I have a better way to build the bridge. So, what will emerge from this, if it isn't checked, and, and admittedly, there's a lot of places where it could be checked and brought into control, but that is the orientation and I want, I'd, I'd like to take teacher A and say, I do think it is a big deal. The response was, well, yeah, it came over here. It's not technically supposed to, but it's not a big deal. I would like to say, look at how big a deal it is. You are, you are running the risk of raising a kid you don't like. And what you will do with a kid you don't like is you will do your best to deceive them and pretend that you do. And so kids will face... And the thing is that other kids don't have to pretend they like them. There are so many kids who are faced with rejection from their peers and lies from their superiors. Why? Because we didn't look at the game. What is the answer? The answer is to come back and say, before we can even figure out whether they're is a game. We have to know that you can follow the rules. So we're going to give you a set of rules that doesn't have exceptions. And when you try to find those exceptions, we are going to either honestly tell you, we didn't notice that, we're going to adjust our rules, or you're going to say, I don't care. I don't care that you want to give your parent a hug. You will stand on the line. And you will wait until the end of the day to give your parents a hug the way all of these other kids are. And they're just fine waiting until the end of the day to give their parents a hug. And I admit that that seems super, super mean and heartless. But I think that it's far kinder than to have the situation where you, you raise a kid who tests every single rule because they believe there's a secret rule basically what will happen when a kid finds that the game they are assigned to play is unwinnable in the long sense and possibly unwinnable in the short sense because very often there are i mean they use the secret rules but we use the secret rules too we will hold kids accountable to things that we didn't specifically say so, it seems to me that 
primarily what happens is that once the kids realize that games are unwinnable, which is the same as them figuring out that games aren't desirable, they don't want to play, one of the things that they will do is they will disengage from the game. That's what you do when it's no fun to play with someone. That's what I do with cribbage. It's like, okay, I'll try it again. And then it's like, come on. How was I supposed to remember that if I had this score, I could get this extra point here and there? And it's like, okay, well, that was nice. I'll see you later. And I don't come back and say, hey, I'll play. Now, with cribbage, I'm convinced that they actually are rules. And so, you know, maybe I, I buckle down and learn the secret rules. But that's because the secret rules are actually rules. But if that isn't an option, I disengage. Hey, I'm out of here. And we have a whole lot of our students who are like, there's no, there's no joy in this. Nobody's giving me a game that makes me want to play again, whether I win or lose. And the other thing I think you see is when kids lose a game by a defined set of rules, they don't want to stop playing. They want to play till they get it right. So either kids depart the game or I think that kids say, I am six years old and I could make a better game. And that's the one that I, I think in the past I saw as rebellion. That kids were trying to play the game their way. They wanted it their way. And I tell you that now I see that more or less as a survival mechanism. They are desperate to have a, a game that they can play that is meaningful, that has rules that they can expect to have a win if they get a win, that is pleasant for both when they do get a win. That manifestation of a game is something they hunger for. And I think that we have just put it into the category of rebellion and said, oh, it's these rebellious kids. And I think we were wrong. I'm convinced that what we ought to have done is to take a look at our game. And if we have a solid game, then we could treat it as an infraction of the rules. And the concept, I've talked about it before, Dad and I talk about kids doing research. And if we give them no good answer to their research, then they decide that, that what matters is to rebel. But I think it's a survival instinct. I think a lot of them are saying, look at I could make a better game. I could make a game where there actually are winners and losers. And maybe they could. I doubt it. But at least they know enough about making rules to know when there are bad rules. So what's the answer? Well, the answer for me is to keep setting my class up as a class that is ruled. And hopefully, it seems to be happening. They love it. They want to come to the class. Not because I say, this is so fun, I'm just going to excite you every minute. It's because I think I gave them a winnable game. So I'm going to keep providing a winnable game. I don't know what else I can do except to help other people start to think about their games and say, have I given my kid a winnable game. If I have rebellion, are they rebelling against the rules or are they rebelling against the lack of rules? 
and it may be that you'll discover that a lot more of their reaction is a rebellion against the lack of rules than against the rules. We're home with more stories to tell. Thank you, Mary. So I will wish you happy trails and I look forward to when we talk again.